Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Finally, the spooky season again, and here at Let's Talk Religion, we celebrate, as always, by talking about some of the darker aspects and corners of religion. Today, we will begin a series of episodes on occultism, specifically as it has manifested in the Islamic world throughout history, from the alchemical writings of Jabir ibn Hayyan, or Geber, through to the uh, esoteric writings of various Shiite thinkers like the Ikhwan al-Safa, or Brethren of Purity, to the lettrist magic of people like Ahmed al-Buni and even Ibn Arabi. There is a vast history and vast literature on this topic and the occult sciences is something that has flourished in the Islamic world throughout history. So let's dive into this world of talismans, magical healing bowls, and alchemy in this introduction to the Islamic occult sciences. Okay, so there are a few things we need to get out of the way first. Firstly, the occult sciences, or magic, in the Islamic world is an appropriately mysterious topic. Up until very recently, there was little research, if any at all, done on this topic. It's even today still a hugely understudied field in that regard. Um, if we look at academia in Europe or North America, the subject of Western esotericism is a by now hugely significant and well-respected academic field, but the same can definitely not be said for the Islamic occult sciences or Islamic esotericism or whatever you want to call it. This trend has started to change in the last few decades with groundbreaking research done by scholars like Liana Saif, Matthew Melvin Kushki, and Noah Gardner to mention a few. This allows us to explore a central aspect in the history and development of science and the occult. And indeed, that's an important part that needs to be kept in mind from the beginning. What we call the occult was simply a part of the larger category of science to most people in history. As Korski argues, the categories of science, magic, and religion have become kind of forcibly separated by a post-enlightenment paradigm, a separation that did not exist previously in history. Even a central and relatively recent figure in the modern category of quote-unquote science, like Isaac Newton, was very famously into things like alchemy. But this division between categories is very pervasive today and often in a kind of hierarchical order. Science is at the top, religion somewhere in the middle, and magic at the very bottom, being something embarrassing, irrational, and superstitious, far removed from anything resembling the mighty science. 
going forward, we should do our best to get rid of any such distinctions or ideas in our head. Not only because it's very healthy to always realize that our particular worldview and the way we categorize these things into different topics is very much based on a particular ideology that we have been brought up into and that shapes the way we look at the world and these different concepts, but primarily and most importantly that none of the people who we will be talking about ever made such distinctions. So what are these topics that we are discussing? What is the occult sciences or occultism? Well, according to a kind of academic definition, and we are notoriously terrible at defining things, when we talk about the occult, we are referring to things including, but not limited to, astrology, alchemy, ceremonial magic, divination, numerology, dream interpretation, talismans, and other related topics. Did or does these things exist in the Islamic world? Anyone who has a basic grasp of this topic and its history will know that it definitely did. But it can indeed be sometimes a controversial topic. I'm sure many of you are thinking right now, hold on, Philip, doesn't Islam forbid magic? Well, it's complicated. When we talk about these topics within science, the occult sciences, Arabic names that were used for it in the Islamic world include al-uloom al-khafiya, meaning literally the hidden or occult sciences, or also al-uloom al-gharibah, meaning something like the unusual or the strange sciences. As we saw, this wider topic also includes categories like magic, a word that is really annoying for scholars since it carries a lot of negative weights and is, surprise surprise, really difficult to define properly. In a very simplistic way, we can say that magic is the process of affecting the world around us in hidden or superhuman ways, or uh, taking advantage of superhuman powers to affect the world around us. The closest Arabic equivalent to quote-unquote magic is the word seher. And seher also has very negative associations in the Islamic world, especially today. Translating seher simply as magic involves a lot of problems, however, as the Arabic term could be used in many different ways by different people. Many, if not most, perhaps Islamic scholars today would claim that seher or magic perhaps better translated as sorcery, is absolutely forbidden in Islam. But in fact, this was not necessarily always the case. Now, this can be a very controversial topic. There are differences of opinion on the legal status of quote-unquote magic and related topics in the Islamic world. Many will point to famous medieval writers like Ibn Khaldun or Ibn Taymiyyah and even Al-Ghazali as being against such practices, thus representing some kind of consensus among scholars. Others point out that these are only a few minority voices and that historical evidence and other sources show that most people, well, didn't agree with them. And even in the case of those writers, they were only against certain occult sciences like astrology, but not necessarily others, like dream interpretation, for example. Now, don't get me wrong, there are definitely forms of magic that were universally considered wrong by Islamic scholars. The argument, rather, is that many people made a distinction between permitted magic, seher halal, the kind that invoked God or his angels or his different powers related to him, and impermissible magic, on the other hand, seher haram, which might, for example, invoke jinn or other non-god forces. Indeed, the medieval lexicographer Ibn Manzur wrote in his Lisan al-Arab that magic was the process of, quote, 
turning something into other than its proper state, and which thus included, quote, everything from intercourse with the demons and enchantment to the power of poetry and eloquence, in other words, licit magic, sihr halal. This clearly gives us a broader definition of the word sihr, which can include things both good and bad, both licit and illicit. We will see examples of how this works later. Emily Savage Smith confirms, quote, Sihir, for example, could apply to anything wondrous, including elegant and subtle poetry, to sleight-of-hand tricks, to the healing properties of plants, to invocations to God for assistance, to invocations to jinn or demons or the spirits of planets, and on occasion even to the divinatory art of astrology. Even medieval authors had their own definitions and subcategories. Magic seeks to alter the course of events, usually by calling upon a superhuman force, most often God or one of his intercessors, while divination attempts to predict future events or gain information about things unseen, but not necessarily to alter them. And when it comes to the occult sciences more broadly, figures like Miskawih and indeed famous philosophers like Al-Kindi considered things like astrology to be part of the natural sciences. So it's not necessarily true that all these occult sciences were seen as such by these medieval thinkers. Indeed, most of these things were seen as part of the rational natural sciences or rational philosophy in that sense. The question of whether or not these practices are allowed in Islam is a very complex topic, and I'm not really in a position to answer that question. I am not an Islamic scholar, I'm not a mufti, and I will leave that discussion to people who are more, who has the authority to actually speak on it. This is also the reasoning behind the title of this video, Introduction to the Islamicate Occult Sciences. I chose to use the word Islamicate rather than Islamic to highlight that these are practices taking place in an environment dominated by Islamic religious and cultural paradigms and political rule, without thus necessarily claiming that they are Islamic, as in connected to the religion of Islam, or being religious per se. As for the occult sciences, rather than a word like occultism, for example, I follow the reasoning of Liana Saif in arguing that on the one hand, occult sciences actually is a more direct translation of the terms that were used by many of these scholars, like Ulum al-Khafiya, for example, but also that this avoids direct associations with occultism as it came to be manifested in particularly in late 19th century Europe, for example, when there was this mass movement of occultism. So the question if these things are allowed in Islam is not for me to answer. I'll leave that to people who are authorized to talk about it. What we are interested in here and what matters for our discussion is rather the question, well, did the occult or magical sciences exist in the Islamic world and do they still? And the answer is definitely yes, it did and it does. The reason that there has been so little research done on this topic and that there's a kind of denial about its very existence goes back to, at least partly, to colonialism and orientalism. The colonialists and orientalist scholars of the past would often point to the widespread practice of occult sciences in the Islamic world as a sign of their backwardness and primitiveness, thus contrasting it to the enlightened and rational West. This resulted in a counter-reaction from two directions. Later scholars who wished to undo these questionable depictions started to emphasize other aspects of the Islamic world, 
instead highlighting quote-unquote rational figures like Ibn Khaldun, who represented the opposite side of the debate. And the same kind of reaction happened in the Muslim community itself. There was an attempt to distance oneself from all practices considered occult, magical, or irrational according to modern Western standards. We see this in the many reform movements in the Islamic world, for example. So this is what has resulted in the contemporary situation where the presence of magic and the occult in the Islamic world is often denied by many Muslim scholars and ignored by academia in the West. But indeed, when we look at history, we see an ocean of such sciences being practiced and written about. It's everywhere, and neither is it some folk practice only associated with uneducated peasants or regular folk. The occult sciences were something that the very people at the top, people like great scholars, philosophers, Sufi saints, scientists, and sultans, were involved with. And as we saw earlier, many of these people considered many of these things that we see as occult sciences as part of the rational endeavor of science or philosophy in a more general sense. So let's jump right in then. What were the occult sciences in the Islamic world and who was involved with them? We find examples of such ideas and practices from the earliest periods. Of course, most of them existed since antiquity. They had been a part of the culture in the Middle East and North Africa and Central Asia and many other regions since long before the life of the Prophet Muhammad. But the arrival and spread of the religion of Islam, of course, affected very greatly the way that these sciences functioned. The Arabs themselves in the pre-Islamic period had partaken in certain occult sciences or magical practices, uh, perhaps most notably the unique to them cultural practice of what they called ilm al-raml, which literally means the science of sand. More commonly, the word used is geomancy, in which one would draw in the sand to predict things in the future. It was a kind of divination. But they were also, just like many other peoples in what became the Islamic world in the Middle East and beyond, also involved with practices like astrology, alchemy, and other various forms of quote-unquote magic. Now, some magical practices appear to be, and were certainly interpreted as being, condemned by the Qur'an itself. For example, in Surat al-Falaq, one of the shorter surahs in the Qur'an, it says that I seek refuge from the those who blow into knots, essentially, which most uh, interpret as referring to some kind of magic that uh, was practiced in pre-Islamic Arabia. But many also uh, interpreted this as only condemning certain practices that were directly related to paganisms or pre-Islamic paganism or other practices that in some way invoked forces other than God, the monotheistic gods or other deities, for example. In other words, with the spread of Islam, we don't see a disappearance of occult or magical practices at all. Indeed, in some cases, we even see an increase in this kind of activity. The Muslims adopted a lot of the practices of the cultures that were conquered and in surrounding regions. For example, Hermeticism became quite popular, a influence that many trace to the so-called star worshippers, the very mysterious group that apparently lived in the city of Haran in modern southern Turkey, um, which are also sometimes identified as the Sabians that the Quran mentions. However, these practices 
changed and adapted to the new Islamic theology. Certain practices like uh, animal sacrifice, for example, seems to have been basically entirely abandoned in the post-Islamic period, while others were simply reframed according to a new Islamic paradigm. What this meant was that all occult practices, all magical invocations, all the powers that were sought out to help with various things were from God, or sometimes his angels or other intercessors. This is what made them halal, or permitted. One simply asks for help from God, which doesn't make it all that different from a regular prayer. What was abandoned, for the most part, were invocations or magic involving forces other than God, such as other deities or jinn, for example. Now, of course, there were still people who did practice magic involving things like jinn, as we will see, but ideally this was avoided and was generally condemned by the Islamic clergy. The way this worked, we can see, for example, in various objects that were used in talismanic magic, objects that were used for protection against various evils. One could have an amulet, for example, that would be covered with names of God in Arabic or verses from the Quran, magic squares and other symbols or seals that were thought to invoke the powers of God for protection. This is still quite widespread today and we can often find things like the hand of Fatima or other similar objects imbued with protective powers. And this is what differs a lot of occult or magical practices in the Islamic world versus the pre-Islamic or non-Islamic contexts, that one almost exclusively invokes God or his power through intercession rather than other hidden forces. Which is also why it might be a little problematic to translate sihr as magic, because magic in our sort of Western European context usually means things involving forces other than God, whereas in the Islamic world it was quite the opposite. Another famous occult science that, in a way, also has strong connections to an Islamic religious paradigm is alchemy. Indeed, while alchemy existed before the Prophet Muhammad, being developed primarily in Egypt by people like Zosimus of Panopolis, it was really fully developed into a proper scientific field and reached new heights in the Islamic world. Indeed, the word alchemy itself actually comes from the Arabic term alchemia, although the word chimia probably originates from Greek, and the phrase means something like the process of transmutation, to simplify it. One of the most significant figures in the history of alchemy is the mysterious early Muslim Jabir ibn Hayyan, known in Latinized form as Geber. He is attributed with writing the so-called Jabirian Corpus, a massive collection of alchemical writings which is said to have included around 600 Arabic works. Now, it is doubted by scholarship whether or not all of these writings, if any of them, can actually be attributed to Jabir ibn Hayyan himself. Many even doubt the very existence of Jabir himself as a historical person, including near-contemporary Muslim scholars in the Middle Ages. But the existence of the corpus and the idea of the figure of Jabir ibn Hayyan shows that alchemy was a science that was taken very seriously by many at that time. Assuming he existed, Jabir's identity is also debated. It seems that he was born in Persia, but that he ultimately came from an Arabic tribal background. In terms of religious affiliation, most assume he was a Shiite, because indeed, very significantly, he often mentions Jafar as-Sadiq, the sixth Shiite imam, as his teacher and as the person who has taught him all the esoteric secrets. 
And this is a very important and interesting point, that the Shia Imams were often seen as the source of all esoteric knowledge and sciences in the Islamic world. Jafar al-Sadiq in particular stands as a central figure in this regard, and is held in high esteem as a teacher by both Shiites and Sunnis, albeit for different reasons. It's not just alchemy that is associated with the Shia Imams, but all kinds of esotericism and occultism related to religious practice and beyond. But alchemy remained an important science during the Middle Ages and into the modern world, and would indeed lay some of the groundwork and lead to the modern field of chemistry. Alchemy was, and has always been, primarily a physical, natural science. It is the process of transmuting or transforming natural substances, most famously of turning base metals into gold, or creating the philosopher's stone, for example. But alchemy sometimes also took on more psychological, symbolic, and spiritual meanings. One of the earliest and most important proto-Sufis, or Muslim mystic-slash-renunciants, Dhul-Nun al-Misri, is said to have been an accomplished alchemist, of course he was since he was from Egypt, and a lot of the basic Sufi terminology and ideas came to use alchemical language, such as purifying the heart, for example, thus of turning a soul that is coarse into a purified gold. This is very alchemical language, and this shows up much later in the writings of people like Ibn Arabi, as well as Al-Ghazali and beyond. Strongly related to alchemy is, of course, also astrology. This was the most popular form of divination in the Islamic world. Like most of the world at that point, the Islamic thinkers believed that the stars and different heavenly bodies that one could see in the night sky had a direct influence on the world and on human beings, our lives, and the things around us. Um, the planets, the heavenly bodies, the stars, as they were known, planet literally means wandering stars, so they were all seen as stars in some way, but it was thought that these stars could be used to uh, not only to look into past events, uh, present events, but also to predict future events, and also to be employed in various ways uh, practically, which we will see soon. The Arabic Muslim philosopher Al-Kindi famously developed the idea of stellar rays as a theory for how magic works in general. In his treatise On Rays, or On the Stellar Rays, which sadly only survives in Latin translation, Al-Kindi explains how the stars act as kind of radiators that send rays from the platonic world of forms. These invisible rays and the almost musical harmony between them is what determines reality as we know it. Everything emits and interacts with these stellar rays, which acts as the causal factor behind every effect in the world. Furthermore, this means that the person who understands how these rays work can not only grasp fundamental aspects of how reality works, but also, to some degree, to manipulate it. Through various means, one can control these rays that exist all around us, and through that also affect the physical world, and thus we have achieved magic. All forms of magic can be explained in this way, according to Al-Kindi, through these stellar rays. And one can influence these rays in various different ways, including simply by uttering certain words or phrases, like incantations and indeed even prayers. Prayers, according to Al-Kindi, work in the same way. These rays themselves and the heavenly bodies from which they come were of course thought 
in themselves to be controlled by God, who always remains the absolute power in the universe. Uh, but astrology as a science was indeed always one of the most controversial of these occult sciences. Uh, when we look at uh, critical writers like Al-Ghazali or Ibn Khaldun, who uh, well criticized certain occult sciences, it was usually primarily astrology that they criticized. Because indeed, it can be interpreted that when they talk about the heavenly bodies and their influence on the world and using these heavenly bodies and their powers to influence things, this can be interpreted to mean that we are using powers other than God to do our will, and thus we are doing something that is not permitted. Whereas for these actual scientists like Elkindi and so on, when we are using the powers of the stars, we are actually using the power of God only through a kind of through intercession in this case by the heavenly bodies. God, as I said, always remains the absolute and ultimate power, at least according to these practitioners themselves, but the critics had a different view of this. So astrology has always been one of those most controversial of occult sciences. In any case, astrology itself continued to be a significant field after this, and still is today, as most of you know. I'm sure most of us have seen someone who wants to read our fortune or, or interpret who we are or our personality based on uh, some sign that we were born under, for example. These are widespread practices even to this day. Aside from gigantic figures like Al-Kindi, we find other peoples like Abu Mashar, and the theories of these early figures, including that of the stellar rays, remain central features of the esoteric and philosophical developments of later periods. In some of the most central and famous books of occult sciences, like the Picatrix or the Shams al-Ma'arif, we find clear influences from people like Al-Kindi. And recent studies by Liana Saif has also demonstrated how they have been hugely influential for modern occultism and Western esotericism as well. The way people today sometimes talk about energies around us that influence the world has direct parallels to the rays of Al-Kindi, for example. Hermeticism continued to be influential in the Islamic world as well. We have figures like Ibn Washiya and his fascinating Kitab al-Filah al-Nabatiya, or the Nabataean Agriculture, a work dealing not only with agriculture, as the title suggests, but also things like astrology and magic. Some of the great philosophers and mystics or Sufis of the medieval age dealt with various occult sciences, including the ones already mentioned, but also in the case of Ibn Sina or Avicenna, for example, through things like herbal medicine. Even this uh, fits into this category of occult sciences. We can see in his Ashifa or other writings how he talks about using different herbs or plants to cure illnesses or other ailments. Fascinating stuff that is very much still in use today. There's nothing like a glass of Maramiya tea when you have an upset stomach. As mentioned, a lot of these occult topics were strongly associated and thought to have originated with the Shia Imams like Jafar al-Sadiq, and we often see Shia thinkers as some of the most noteworthy when it comes to these topics. The very famous and mysterious anonymous group known as the Ikhwan al-Safa, the Brethren of Purity, who were probably Ismaili Shiites, devoted an entire epistle in their grand work, probably written in the mid-10th century, to magic or sihr. There was never any question of whether or not magic worked or existed. Of course it did. The relevant questions were how do we protect ourselves from magic? 
is magic allowed or not? And sometimes, how does magic work? And this stuff was widespread. All the way in Al-Andalus, in modern Spain, uh, there were people who were very much into the occult sciences here as well. And it is in this environment, in the 10th century, that one of the most significant books of occult and magic sciences appear. One of the most famous grimoires, in, certainly in the Islamic world, but in the world generally, is written at this time, which is known as the Rayat al-Hakim, which means the goal of the sage. This is a kind of syncretic work of magic and astrology, which became very influential, not just in the Islamic world, but also in Europe, where it became more famously known as the Picatrix. There is so much fascinating stuff to talk about when it comes to this topic. Magical seals, the staff of Moses as a magical object, magical healing bowls, uh, the seal of Solomon, other talismans. By the 12th century, if not before, occult sciences and certain forms of quote-unquote magic had become mainstream. It was widespread and an aspect of daily life that was taken for granted. At around this time, it also came to be strongly associated with Sufi saints and their spiritual authority, and indeed continued to be developed by them. Another one of the most famous, significant, and indeed controversial works of occult science in the Middle Ages is the so-called Shams al-Ma'arif, or the Son of Knowledge, attributed to the Egyptian Sufi personality Ahmed al-Buni. This work is really a work of Sufism and dhikr, the invocation of God's names, but which leans heavily into the occult aspect. This includes how to make protective talismans using God's names and other seals, but also involves discussions about jinn magic and other things. Very fascinating stuff indeed, but also, as I said, very controversial. This book is sometimes considered to be almost cursed by some Muslims, and that even owning a copy will bring you great misfortunes. By contrast, some Sufi orders still use it as an important work of spiritual instruction, and it has become perhaps the most important occult work or grimoire in the Islamic world since then. The Rayat al-Hakim, or Picatrix, became very famous and influential in Europe primarily, whereas the Shams al-Ma'arif, attributed to Al-Buni, has probably been the most influential and famous uh, such work in the Islamic world in itself. At around the same time as Al-Buni, we have the greatest sheikh, or Sheikh al-Akbar ibn Arabi, who in his writings like the Futuhat al-Makiyah employs various occult sciences symbolically, including astrological speculation and its alchemical connections, as well as, much like Ahmed al-Buni in the Shams al-Ma'arif, the ideas of ilm al-huruf, or the science of letters. Especially around the 13th century, this became a very significant topic and subject. The science of letters proposes, to simplify a bit, that the letters of the Arabic alphabet have powers in themselves that can be utilized. Indeed, Ibn Arabi begins his massive compendium called Al-Futuhat al-Makiyah, or the Meccan Revelations, with a discussion on the science and secrets of letters. They different associations with lunar mansions, planets, and other heavenly bodies. This is also a good example to show how intertwined a lot of these occult sciences were. Even something like the science of letters were deeply connected to astrology, which in itself is connected to alchemy. So all of these topics are, are seen as parts of a single thing. To Ibn Arabi, creation is essentially the speech of God. 
It is the Nafas ar-Rahman, the breath of the All-Merciful, exclaimed in the originating command Kun, or Bi, as in the Quranic Kun Fayakun, Bi, and it is. In a very real sense, to Ibn Arabi, God creates the world through words. Everything in the world is made up of words and their constituting letters. And the actual letters of the Arabic alphabet are like visual representations or symbols of these essential letters of which creation is made. This means that they have powers to affect us, like when we recite names of God, letter combinations that are indeed very powerful. And this stuff wasn't unique to Ibn Arabi. Even outside of an Islamic religious framework, we see similar ideas flourishing in other traditions, such as in Kabbalah or in Jewish mysticism. Contemporary figures like Abraham Abu Lafia view the Hebrew alphabet in a very similar way. And the already mentioned Shams al-Ma'arif also talks very significantly about the science of letters. As you can tell, there is a lot to go through here. There is so much fascinating stuff, and you've probably noticed that in this episode I've only touched very briefly on each topic. This is because I plan to do separate episodes for many of these subjects, from talismanic magic to the Picatrix and the Shams al-Ma'arif in themselves. In this episode, I've instead given you a general introduction to this topic, an overview which will prepare us to later dive deeper into these separate topics in future episodes. So I'll see you then.